So, once again, we are back on the Idea Market podcast. We are joined by Mike Elias, CEO of Idea Market, and we are joined by Kevin Awaki, the founder and I believe CEO of Gitcoin and currently sort of extremely into the NFT space on Twitter, it seems. I think I'm right in thinking that. Totally. Um, thanks for thanks joining us, Thanks so much Kevin. for having me. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so we have a little question, which isn't you know, the stereotypical introduce yourself. Um, if Kevin, you were to develop a course, like a study course, uh, or like a boot purpose, camp, a boot camp, the purpose of which is to train or teach the person taking it to become as like you as possible. Uh, what would that course include? What would it look like? Yeah, just to make, make sure I understood the question to make them as unlike me or as, oh, no. as like as me. as like you, as alike you. Uh, okay. Oh man. Like how how would you question. clone yourself from people who are already born? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think I would just download all everything I know into the matrix and then we would just, you know, invent that like doo chop matrix thing that they do, that Neo does. Um, oh man, that's a good question. I, I feel like I like to operate at multiple levels. Uh, I'm a, I'm a coder through and through and, and writing software has been a part of my identity for a really long time. And so teaching them the code, I think, would be would be um, a big part of what I do. Um, and then from there, you've got this foundation in which like the world is your the world is your oyster. You can build digital products, you can produce really cool stuff on the internet. And um, I think it's it's all memes and mechanisms from there. Just kind of participating in internet culture, vibing with people. And then uh, mechanisms is how we innovate. Uh, I think we're mostly known for quadratic funding, but I've been playing with some like NFT and bonding curve stuff. And I know Idea Markets is doing some really fun mechanism stuff. So it's it's memes and mechanisms all the way down. And I, and I think that those would be the th- coding memes and mechanisms would probably be the three areas that I would start. But um, it's it's hard to... It's hard to answer this question without sort of like acknowledging, though, that there's like parts of us that are outside of our professional persona and we're all these three dimensional humans. We only get to experience each other through these avatars. And so that that is allowed, by the way, that is allowed to bring other dimensions. in. like I got my guitar wall right here. Like, you know, we can you can you can be, be your whole self. I wish I was that cool uh, hobby wise. I have a bunch of hacky sacks I could show you guys. Maybe, you know, I love hacky sacking. Hacky sacking um, is is the most the most like low key cool thing there is. I think it's just no equipment and you look yeah, and it's harder than it looks. So you can shame new people. It's awesome. Well, and it's a multiplayer game, multiplayer infinite yeah. game, right? Um, I've yeah. been doing hacky sacks at Ethereum and crypto events basically since 2019, and it's a great way to make people feel included. They're a part of a group that's playing this game, and a lot of people will say things like, "Oh, I haven't played this since high school, but I love it. I don't know why I stopped." And, and I'll say, well, we're at a hackathon. You better, you better get to hacking. Yeah, <laughs> um, that then, is a then, that is a hack. It's a and hack. Then the funny in, thing in, is that yeah, it was it was a hack to get people more hacking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, yes. I, I feel like I just stole your joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, by all means. But uh, and then so what happens when when Gitcoin DAO launched in May? We launched this token called Sax, uh, which was just a homage to Uniswap launching Socks. Uh, uh, just like fun, playful token where they took a bunch of socks and put them on a Uniswap bonding curve, and and like the price of that went way up. Uh, and the same thing happened with sacks. For a little while, we tokenized these hacky sacks 
and we we were selling them for I mean we sold we put the tokens on Uniswap and Uniswap was selling them for between a thousand dollars and twenty thousand dollars. So the internet is is weird. Uh, we made hacky sacking I think more popular by putting a token on it, and that was that was really surprising to me. That's awesome. I remember the day the price of Unisox went through the roof. I I will always remember that day because I think it was I think it was the day that the Uni token dropped, and that was like yeah. where were you when? Um, yeah, I love the idea of hacky sacking as this sort of social hack to get people into this community feel. Um, I'm always totally. looking for things like that. I've never hacky sacked before, so I have to like get my skills up before trying this. Uh, yeah, no, you don't need to bring any skills. You just got to bring community-oriented spirit and vibes to the Hacky Sack Circle. Next event I see you at, I'll, I'll definitely try to get you one. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I, I will practice then as to uh, embarrass myself as little <laughs> as possible. Um, cool. It reminds me of, oh, I just can't help but mention this. When I was going to college in Santa Cruz, you know, there would be like buses between the different parts of campus and stuff and, you know, down to town. And if you started singing the right song, the whole bus would join you. And it was just the coolest, like most surreal thing ever. Like if you sing the Pokemon opening theme or Bohemian Rhapsody or something like that, just somehow miraculously, everyone on that bus knows it and like it becomes this big social thing. And I feel like the hacky sack hack has a similar feel to it. Like, oh, it doesn't matter who you are. You can jump into this. And mm-hmm. that's, that's really, really, really useful. Like I want, I want a catalog of these things to, you know, ice, ice break without freaking people out by the word icebreaker, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. That inclusivity is, um, is a good feeling and it's too bad. We can't scale that in, in more and more places. Yeah, man. There's so much I want to ask you, but <laughs> I'm, I'm wondering I've never, I've never really been a coder. Like what was, what was your journey into software development? Yeah. What was, what was that like? Like what's, how did, how did you fall into that and and why did it connect so deeply? Yeah. um, Well, my, my old man when growing up was a physics professor. And so first kid on the block to get a computer and Computers are just fun. Uh, you have computer games. You have AOL for IMing with girls uh, when you're in middle school. And yes, very. We were just case. talking about that. That's how I met my wife. Yeah. Oh, via IM. Yeah, AOL and some messenger. Yeah. It's a long story. Wow, that's, but, uh, that's cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I used to have like land parties with my friends in the neighborhood. We used to play StarCraft One or like WarCraft Two over the land. That was always pretty fun to do that stuff. But around the time when I was 14 and I like wanted to make money to buy a car and, you know, start earning money. Um, I had, I had this job that I got at a cashier. I was a cashier at a supermarket and, uh, I hated it so much. I just like, used to watch the clock and I couldn't wait to get out of there. And, but I wanted to earn money for a car. So I had to clock more hours and what I eventually got hooked into is that my friend Mike, this guy I used to do land parties with, was like, I'm going to start a company online. And I was like, kind of like, oh, that's weird. We were just like hanging out after, after a land party one day. And he was showing me what he was doing. He was running a web hosting company. Um, and he would just rent servers for like 
60 bucks a month and then he would sell a, a bunch of space on it he would like virtualize it um and we would in and, and i eventually got cut in on this i built my own like web hosting company and there were night and and so long story short i was making more money off of doing computer stuff than i was off of my shitty like supermarket job um and it just really taught me the power of oh wow there's this whole blue ocean out on the internet and where if you're like a hacker you can kind of write your own ticket and so um I got a computer science degree just because I thought computers were interesting and I really loved programming. Like I have this like log logical mind for programming. And when I um, graduated from school, they ushered me into corporate America and I, I again hated it so much. Just like going from hanging out with all your friends on campus to being at like, you find yourself on like Tuesday morning at like eight 30 at the water cooler with some like 50 year old lady who's talking about her kid's soccer practice. And I was just like, wanted to commit Sampaku. Um, and, um, and so, uh, at that time I started hacking with the Facebook platform, which had just come out and I built these, these like flash, I was, these flash game web like apps where you could like play beer pong on your friend's wall it was pretty stupid use case but like it went viral and again i started making more money off like the internet through like a hack than i did at my corporate job and i was like oh i should probably quit my corporate job and so i did and um i went through i went through tech stars i got uh i, I somehow worked my way into going through tech stars which is like a startup boot camp and i've just been doing startups ever since and it's always just been it's just been a lot of fun to, to as the internet, as software has eaten the world, there's a lot more opportunities to, to hack and to create more impact on the world with, with software skills. So I feel like I made the right bet when I was 14 and I started getting into programming, like totally lucky and fell ass backwards into it. But we're also privileged and lucky to have software skills and be working in this industry that could rewrite the financial system and hopefully make it better if, if we do it right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Speaking of rewriting the financial system, if I remember correctly, you used to have in your Twitter bio or some other place <laughs> the phrase wannabe philosopher king. Do I, do I remember that accurately? Yeah, that was in there for a bit. Yeah. All right. So I'm sorry to embarrass you, but I have to know, like, I, of course, am a big fan of building philosophy into the financial infrastructure of the future. And mm -hmm. I have, I have, I can maybe guess given your quadratic fund funding commitments and coordination memes uh, and mm. some, some elements of your philosophy, but I would love to get your take on what, what exactly you're trying to build into the future, what philosophies you're trying to um, propagate and, you know, where your heart is with all that. Totally. Um, well, I, I just want to say that like, I'm happy to explore this design space, but just know that it's like, it's all a LARP, right? So like when I say I'm a wannabe philosopher king, it's really to play with this idea that, uh, like Plato's idea that like a, a ruler who has a love of wisdom and intelligence and, um, living a simple life. And, and like, I like that idea a lot, but like, I would never call myself a philosopher king. I think a wannabe philosopher king 100%. is like, a fun way to, to, to like LARP a little bit at it. And like, you know, just so contrast that vision with the people who have power in politics today to me is like a fun little like mental, uh, I don't know, fortune cookie or something. But anyway, yeah. um, I would say that my, my like, you know, I, I studied computer science in school, but I also got a philosophy minor and I've just kind of like tried to explore um, 
you know, a, lo- a lot of that stuff throughout the years. Um, it's like a nice compliment to a software engineer skills to have like a breadth of knowledge about um, all this stuff. But I would say that um, I, I, I think that Ethereum and blockchain companies uh, protocols are very cyberpunk which I understand to be about a declaration of independence of, of cyberspace and um, a place that is independent of nation state governments and, and, and basically like freedom for, for punks, uh, freedom to encrypt, freedom to live in private. And um, I think those ideas are really interesting. And I, and I, and I understand, I, I understand and try to grok and swim in those waters, but, my deepest philosophy, I think, is not uh, cypherpunk. I think it's solarpunk, which is this vision of the future in which um, humanity has solved its contemporary uh, challenges with an emphasis on sustainability problems like climate change and pollution. And so there's this art movement that has all these different pieces of art that discuss solarpunk philosophy, which is like an integration of nature and technology in solving of sustainability and I think that uh, I think that for for me, like you know, we hear you hear me focus on open source software being a public good in a lot of ways. But like one of my hopes is that if we can solve open source software, we can unleash a mountain of software engineers that are working on public goods. They all quit their jobs at J.P. Morgan and work for public goods. And what if we could solve problems with misinformation and with climate change? and pollution and and stuff like that because we've got this tidal wave of software engineers that are working on public goods and so uh ethereum is solar punk to me and i find those ideas to be really inspiring not that i don't find cypherpunk stuff to be somewhat inspiring but i feel like cypherpunk is too stated in the negative of like wanting to fight nation state governments and for me like the nation state is good when it's supporting the public good and it's bad when it's like got fraud and and is like coercive and is going to war and like what we really want to do is create mechanisms that support the public good that are based in um uh based in blockchain based networks and to me that's solar punk and that's that's like kind of the waters that i'm trying to explore right now awesome yeah i love the dichotomy there between cyberpunk as this sort of like stick it to the man negative kind of necessity and that it sounds like from what you're describing solar punk, it's a very aspirational sort of future. It's like the the yeah. good version of black mirror. It's, it's white mirror. It's, this is what we could do. This is how things could be. And yeah. Um, yeah. With, with shades of gray, like there are parts of the cyberpunk philosophy that I think are very positive, like especially on sure. privacy and encryption. And like, I'm glad that it's for that. But every time I look at cyber cyberpunk art, it's always like dark and dystopian. It feels like Batman's Gotham as opposed to like a solar punk utopia. Uh, just like the imagery is very different. Yeah, that's a great point too. And I love the all the nature that is brought into solar punk visions. Mm-hmm. Um, I love seeing visions of the future that have a lot of green, that have a lot of grass. Yeah. Well, um, Mother Nature is the OG yeah. inventor. Like biomimicry works for a reason. It's because nature tried like through brute force all these different mechanisms and the ones that have survived these like just like fractal patterns of growth are the ones that have staying power just through like evolution and natural selection. So I think biomimicry is inspiring on that level, but also just like when you go to the forest and you breathe clean air, you feel fucking great because that's where we evolved, you know, as like as as uh, humans. And so there's like two levels through which I think 
it feels really great to explore that that kind of green, that natural ethos. Yeah, absolutely. So is 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 um, Gitcoin? Is this the the sort of the foundation that you built to basically spread these ideas to be the the hub for this future? Um. Oh man, if I if I was that forward thinking, then I think that uh, <laughs> uh, the answer is is honestly I didn't start out that way. Um, I started out building seven different blockchain side projects, and like Gitcoin was the seventh and the one that didn't fail. Um, and and it started, so it started off with wanting to solve open source, which is like you know in my time leading technology teams, I'd realized how big and powerful open source was, and how freaking shitty it was that people had to work nights and weekends on open source, and so like. I knew that, but it was like kind of only the tip of the sphere. It was only when I heard Vitalik talk about public goods, which like open source software is a public good, but there are many other public goods that are really valuable. And then, um, th- then I got like more into the solar punk and, and, and sort of that, like that level of depth. But, um, what's been nice about Gitcoin is that I do feel like the mechanisms that we're building and that we're proving out have given me more confidence that these problems are actually solvable with the internet of money. Like go to gitcoin.co slash results, $35 million we've created for open source software developers. In the old world, people were like, don't even fucking bother. Like you're never going to be able to pay for open source. There's no business model for it. So um, it's the traction in that that has made me more, I think, assertive in, in, in embracing this philosophy and hopefully it'll continue to cycle together. But it was kind of a happy accident. It was not something I planned to actually answer your question. Is there, That's is there interesting. A- go ahead, James. Is there a predominant place this this money is coming from? Just to you know, like you know, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So um, I would say that Gitcoin is a double sided market that connects open source software developers to the people who want access to their skills, and then um, and then gives mo- Gitcoins like you get coins if you have software skills on Gitcoin, um, and so basically. Um, the way the where the money comes from is like people who want to sponsor hackathons and engage with the developers there um and then also grants are like we're gonna just finish grants round 11 we're gonna do two million dollars for ethereum ecosystem projects and that money comes half from the crowd half from people who want to give a dollar or two to show their appreciation and then half from this matching pool that we've raised from rounds one to seven were the ethereum foundation and then round eight Andre from Yearn was like, yo, Gitcoin is great. I'm giving 150K. And then at the time, Andre and Yearn were like the coolest thing on the planet. So like everyone else started giving money to the matching pool then. So rounds eight through 10 were like DeFi protocols. And then round 11, we launched uh, an NFT called Moonshot Bots that raised $2 million for the public goods matching pool. So we're starting to figure out how to engineer raising money for public goods using crypto. It has been like the latest development there. But the answer is like, James, my secret is that everyone wants software developers, and I'm just like kind of good at inspiring and like aggregating software developers and on on Gitcoin and through Gitcoin's brand. It's like a shelling point, shelling point for developers. Yeah, but I mean, it's just an interesting idea of obviously the question of why people feel compelled to give this money, but it almost seems seems like a like an anti-tax. Right, it's like yeah. taxes. Taxes are going towards nothing useful, so we're actually going to voluntarily put our money towards things which we know are going to benefit us in the long run. For instance, yeah. like eventually Gitcoin might help, as you say, uh, not so much undermine, but change the financial system to benefit those who are actually paying into it. Um, I mean, perhaps perhaps a, a heated question would be like, do you, do you foresee places like Gitcoin 
potentially getting some flack because they have the potential to, you know, shut down these big centralized systems or at least uh, prove a better alternative? Um, I think the innovation is messy and it's almost never the story that you see in like the social network when it hits the Hollywood big screens. And so, um, so far I, f- I feel embraced by nothing but love uh, by the Ethereum community and the open source community. Actually the open source community is, some of them think that all blockchain projects are scams and that you should stay all away. And, you know, like, so in that sense, we've gotten flack, but um, yeah, I don't know. Change is messy and we'll see what happens. I think that open source software creates $500 billion per year in economic value and Gitcoin's doing like $15 million a year in <laughs> rewards. So like find me when we were doing one or two more orders of magnitude of growth and I'll probably have some more uh, story, <laughs> so a story to tell you on that one. One of the things, like you mentioned that Gitcoin wasn't necessarily, didn't necessarily start out as a way to like build toward the solar punk future, right? It just kind of happened to line up that way in the sense of unlocking, you know, solving, solving open source funding. Um, Correct Um, me if I'm, if I heard that wrong. Yeah. I mean, I think that like my building skills and my philosophical skills it feels like they're just like meandering when I look at it, but I don't know. They, they're probably correlated in some way that, that I'm exploring these idea spaces together. So it's like, a, I feel like they're chicken and the egg, you know, I don't know which one yeah. came first and, but, but they're definitely there together. Got it. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm hearing that sentiment a lot um, that, yeah. you know, just do what you're interested in and really genuinely like, and then at some, they'll eventually like converge and reinforce each other and like have some, fit yeah and that definitely was the case for me it's hard um, um when you're climbing the wrong hill and you know you're climbing the wrong hill it's it's hard when i was at, in corporate america and i was like i know i don't want to do this for the rest of my life but i'm afraid to make a change it was really jarring and i made it a weight i made a weighted pro con list of quitting my corporate job and going into startups and um and I almost didn't do it. I, I, I almost didn't, didn't do it. And like that counterfactual Kevin that's sitting in a cubicle somewhere is probably fucking miserable. So it's, just, it's hard to get off that when you're climbing the wrong hill to recognize that and to start descending and going towards that global maxima. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. I wanted to just free associate a little bit on the problem of open source and mm-hmm. why I agree with you that I think solving it is a big deal that mm-hmm. Um, I was talking to, when I was working for my previous employer, who's building a really cool trading interface, a 3d trading interface, I was at a conference mm-hmm. and I was talking to an investor, um, potential investor and he's, I'm, I'm not going to name names, but he's prominent, prominent name that people know. And he said, you know, this is really cool. This should be a whole industry. Um, just figure out how to own own these users, figure out how to own these users. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of a web two ethos, but also it's kind of the antithesis of open source. Like in a way, if you're what the, the public goods, the software-based public goods that get built are an escape from the sort of the idea that you have to be rapacious first. You have to be rapacious in order to get funded. You have okay. to kind of have this sort of um rapacious means greedy am i i just googled it <laughs> yeah oh yeah uh, okay. it, it means greedy. it means grabby kind of um mm. i think i think literally the latin is yeah like to grab 
Um, cool. And the so, idea, like, I've, I've, I'm, I have, I haven't quite gotten this out yet. Mm. Um, public goods do so much good. But generally, in order to get things funded, you have to be rapacious first. There's like a prerequisite. You have to sell sell things on this sort of this will profit you basis. And if you can figure out how to unlock funding for projects that don't meet that criterion, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it opens up this big bottleneck and allows oh. people to build things that otherwise might not be fundable in that traditional model. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that like, you know, a few things that come to mind for me when you talk about that is that, um, you know, like we would all be better off in a world in which things were just forkable. Like I could leave Facebook and just like fork it and create a better network. And um, a lot of these web two companies are avoiding creating that world because they want to have a moat where users can't leave them. Um, And there's actually a playbook for this. Uh, Chris Dixon has an article about how these these networks will start off working really hard to attract users to them. Um, and like Uber, for example, has worked really hard in the beginning to attract drivers with very great rates and attract users with great deals. And then they hit this network effect where every driver that joins Uber makes it better for every user and every user that joins Uber makes it better for every driver because there's more inventory on both sides of the network. And so they hit this network effect. And when it starts spinning, then these companies become inevitable and they withdraw their attempts to attract the users. And then the, you know, by then they've raised probably $30 million worth of venture capital or more. I don't know, $30 million is a lot to me, but I guess if you're in Silicon Valley, that's like a seed round or something. Um, and, and then they move from attracting users to extracting from them because they want to create a hundred X return for their investors. And, um, their investors are not their users. Their investors are these like rich in the few out of Silicon Valley that get access to these deals. And so, the thing that's really exciting about about that for me, it just like recognizing that. And by the way, I was a Web two entrepreneur for like ten years before I got into Web three, and so I like I understand that game. And the thing that's really exciting to me about about what you can do with with crypto is that um, with Gitcoin, like I literally saw us heading towards this future where we're a double sided market that connects people who want to get software developers to uh, the people who want to want to pay them and like i was really worried about being a management team that was working really hard to attract the developers and then once we hit this network effect where we were inevitable like that i would have investors that would be like okay now seven like you knew this was coming it's time to extract um and and luckily joe lubin invested in gitcoin and he's never ever had that conversation with me um and i really managed to find some value aligned investors in paradigm after you know Joe Joe was ready for us to fly fly the Nastic consensus, and so one of the things we were able to do is give the governance rights of the network to the users, and we just did a retroactive distribution of GTC to all of the devs who had been on the platform, and um, and what I like about that is like we're eventually going to decentralize Gitcoin, and there'll be no like it won't matter what Kevin Owaki thinks, but like until we get there, um, basically there's this closed loop where. The uh, the people who have the governance rights to the network are the people on the on the network itself, and it's this like closed loop where no one can be extracting from them. And hopefully, that'll power us to longer term growth, like even more network effects over the long term. In theory, I don't know if people are rational, which they probably aren't. Um, and and like for me, it's about closing the asymmetry between value created and value captured. 
The reason why public goods can't be funded is because they create so much value in the world. But since they're freely available, non-excludable and non-rivalous, you can't it cr- capture any of the value in them. And so what's really exciting about crypto is, cl- is that it gives us a tool to close the gap between value created and value captured by, um, well, it's not exactly clear to me the mechanism through which it works, but there are a lot of crypto networks that are public good that uh, are not focused on capturing value at all. And to me, that's really exciting. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Um, the way I've thought of it in the past is reconciling private interest with public interest. Like people, if you figure out a way to get people paid, um, then it's in their their own interest to contribute, and then that contribution can benefit everybody. Um, that you can sort of take away this sort of um, adversarial relationship between companies and the public or governments and the public and kind of have everyone on the same side, the, uh, you know, chicken and egg thing. It's instead of having chickens with leashes that, you know, yank their chicks around. I don't know. I don't know how that metaphor works, (laughs) but uh, yeah, i just, I just, I really share and appreciate that vision. And I should definitely say that, if it weren't for Gitcoin, I seriously doubt Idea Market would have gotten off the ground at all because oh, Gitcoin great. was oh yeah, no question. Like I've zero dev experience and the the week that Balaji retweeted the article that I wrote about Idea Market and you know said some nice things about it, I was like, all right, we have to actually try this now. Like I've been trying to get people to steal it yeah. and with it, people who know what they're doing. But it's just not happening. It's been months, so I have to do this. And I went to Gitcoin and hired freelancers with my own money and threw together a prototype. And it was the best thing ever. We met our CTO there. He's still our CTO and he's been amazing. He's won some of the biggest bug bounties in Ethereum history. And it's, uh, it's all thanks to the, the primordial ooze of, of hungry Gitcoin devs. <laughs> Be careful, you might become a testimonial at some point. Um, mostly because you've I said that to speak. me before. Yeah, you've said that well, to me before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well, now I especially want to do it because you called us primordial ooze, and I just think it's. A, I, I just want to see what our marketing team would think of that metaphor. <laughs> well, I yeah, I I said that at at the risk of offending you, but I really think of it as a a wonderful fertile thing, like you know oh, the totally, chaos yeah. out of which good things come from. Um, Thanks. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. That that feels great, man. Um, uh, one of the nice things about what we've done is that we, you know, we survived one bear cycle, and I just meet people all the time that are like, "Hey, Gitcoin changed the course of my career in X, Y, or Z way," and um, that feels really special. I, um, it the, that the it's those moments that make all the fucking stress, uh, all the stress worth it. So, um, thank you for saying that, and I hope that we can help you all in the future as Idea Markets continues to grow. Thank you, man. Yeah, that'd be a great pleasure. I love the, um, I, I love the mission, and I love trying to figure out how to solve these things that seem to be intractable. Um, yeah, like the conflict of interest. Um, if if I, I completely agree with you that if if we can just remove the ceiling on open source and getting paid for it and aligning capital with the will for things to exist. Like people want libraries, people want public parks and museums and yeah. all that stuff. And it's just hard to, hard to do it. Well, and if, if, if you can take the ceiling point. off that, yeah. Well, I was just going to say like people associate those things like public parks and all that stuff with the nation state. And we're at this really interesting place where I think that 
um, like citizens organizing peer to peer can be effective at competing with nation states for delivering public goods. And so that's like, well, I actually like, I debate with Eric Voorhees a lot on Twitter because he's just like, fuck the nation states, all taxation is coercive and like, you know, like public goods aren't worth it. And, you know, or like, I don't think he says that, but like, that's what I hear when he says, you know, uh, when he says it and like, um, basically my argument to him is like, no, we want public goods, but like, what if we could organize them peer to peer? Like libertarians are very anti-state. Um, and, and I think that like, they're not anti-public goods, they're just anti-state and the vehicle for delivering public goods has traditionally been the state. And so if you can disconnect in their mind that you can let public goods, good nation state, bad, like instead of like, you know, like, I think like that evolution in, in a narrative is like what I'm trying to create in the space, but it's just like fucking nuance is the enemy of common understanding. And it's just like, I still haven't gotten the idea into a capsule that's like concise enough to, to really spread it yet. But, um, I do, I do think that, um, I do think that if we can turn that corner, then we can make Ethereum just as solar punk as it is cyberpunk. And, um, that to me would be really powerful. Yeah, I guess this is a it's like an inherent individualist capitalist aspect to the libertarian, right? Like the don't tread on me thing. They're very mm-hmm. protective. And I guess they they probably just speaking from some of the libertarians I've spoken to over the years, they probably would see like the idea of like peer to peer, we're helping each other out, not in terms of some value which is going to like specifically benefit me entirely. They might see that as like, oh, is this uh is this communism? Is this, you know, is this encroaching on some other thing that we don't agree with? But I don't think that has to be the case, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. It doesn't have to be the case. The problem is that it's all bundled um, together in like one nation state government. And um, yeah, I mean, actually, I don't know. I, I don't know. I think that people are going to innovate and explore new ways of doing this. And, and let me just say that Gitcoin is one one project that's doing really well, trying to solve this, but like Dev Protocol, CLR Fund, Radical, doing good. I respect that there's a ton. There's like a bunch of us that I would call regions that are looking to create a counterweight to DGENs in in this space. And um, I think the, the the next great mechanism has not been invented yet, and it probably won't just be quadratic funding the whole way down. And there'll be many a marketplace of different things that people can choose from. Yeah, absolutely. Um... One of the other things that makes Gitcoin particularly special is the community aspect. You've alluded to it earlier, but it really has this wonderfully sprawling influence on the culture of Ethereum in, in particular. Mm-hmm. And I know yeah. that you guys are always in touch with the Radical Exchange guys and with Vitalik and like, you know, trying mm-hmm. to solve this stuff both on like the big abstract wide scale and on the little practical individual scale. Mm-hmm. Um how did how did you scale Gitcoin? Like it's it seems like you've got there's like a whole empire here, and there's no way you can, you yeah. know, manage to spin all those plates yourself. So well, like what? Uh, yeah, tell me that. Yeah. Well, step one: fall ass backwards into Joe Lubin funding you for four years. Step two: build Gitcoin. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, I'm being flippant about it. Step three: profit. But, yeah. Yeah. No, not profit. Uh, public goods. Um, Right. But, but I do think that, um, you know, like in, in reality, I actually like 
Gitcoin was like my sixth or seventh crypto project. And I tried like systematically to find a way into the space and um, was just like never felt welcome. Like people blew me off for calls, interviews went bad. I got declined for job offers in the space. And like, it was just like really hard to break into the space. But as soon as I got someone who would vouch for me and put me in front of Joe and then Joe uh, liked me, then it was like I was in the club and Gitcoin was cool. And there were people who were like super powerful Silicon Valley like types that like just liked me and liked Gitcoin because Joe was like, yo, this guy is going to do something. And like, you know, and like conversely during the long bear market when they were doing like seven rounds of restructuring, Joe never shut me down. So um, like, now, I mean, like, I guess like now I, I didn't feel like it at the time, but like now I guess I'm an insider in the Ethereum ecosystem and like I have that privilege and that access that other people don't have. And I, but I always remember what it was like to be on the outside of that and to not be, you know, um, known or to even be welcomed in, in like the space. And like, I think that the, like, there's a couple different communities that have done a really good job of making outsiders feel more welcome. ETH Global is number one. And like, by the way, Gitcoin sells hackathons and we compete with ETH Global, but like, yo, respect to ETH Global for making everyone feel welcome at these events. Um, Meta Cartel is like a lot of like the first where people hang out and vibe and like make friends in the space and then they find their position, you know, what they want to do next through Meta Cartel and that, uh, that culture. And um, crypto Twitter to some extent, but you know, when you're on social media, there's this perverse incentive to build a brand and to meme and like pick, pick fights and stuff. So um, I do think creating more inclusive environments for people to find their space in the space in the space is something that I'm really passionate about. And I'm, I'm kind of proud that like Gitcoin has, done, we don't do it great, but like, you know, with Gitcoin grants, like I've seen multiple people that were like, felt like their work was validated in the space because they were able to raise like 50K on Gitcoin grants through three or four rounds. And so that feels, that feels good to be building that onboarding funnel. But um, I forget what question you asked me, but that's how I got into the space. Sure. Yeah, no, I was really asking about the fact that Gitcoin has a really broad scope, it seems at this point. There's lots oh, yeah. of sub projects, there's kernel, there's grants, there's, yeah. there's so much going on. Totally. Well, you know, I think it's because, um, so we started off with, uh, Gitcoin launched as a bounty platform where like, if you do X, you can get Y. Um, and then we launched an NFT called Kudos, which like we were super early on NFTs. Um, then we launched Gitcoin grants and I actually hired Austin Griffith for like six months and called something, there's something called Gitcoin labs that he ran. And like, he still has a lot of work that was pioneering in in like meta transactions and counterfactual instantiation, like shit that's still innovative today. He was doing in 2018 just because like um, it, our mission was to grow and sustain open source software, and like bounties was not the way. Like it was just the first product that we launched with, and and because we because we had like Joe Lubin backing us, we were able to just be more aggressive in exploring the design space really fast. Oh, and also I had I had like Joe Lubin bucks, but I also had bounties. So like anytime I had an idea, I would just throw it on a bounty. And like 50% of the time you won't get anything back or it's crap. But like 25% of the time you like discover a new market niche or launch a new product and stuff. So we just like explored extremely fast and probably built up too much tech debt. Uh, and, and now we're kind of shutting down what wasn't working and focusing again on grants and hackathons from there. Uh, Colonel was the brainchild of Vivek Singh, who's my co-founder at Gitcoin. And 
kernel is great and i have a ton of affinity for kernel it has become its own thing it'll probably be its own dao a uh, sister dao to gitcoin dao one day and um i think i haven't been always good at enabling all the people around me but i feel super proud that like vivek was able to create kernel at gitcoin that's a cool story and i think kernel's helping create an inclusive environment for a lot of people in the space those who are able to get in yeah i was fortunate to be in the last kernel cohort oh, you in the last block? it was awesome nice. i was I was uh, KB4, block four, yeah. And it was, it was, it was like really cool as an understatement because I had thought for decades basically that I don't like structured, like school, like class like things. But it wasn't mm-hmm. the structure that I didn't like. It was that I didn't feel like well aligned enough with my peers. But when mm-hmm. I read Colonel's 10 principles, like six of them were. In Idea Markets DNA, I was like, "All right, I got to do this," and mm. it was awesome. It was the most, it was the most philosophically nuanced, without being dry, like cohort than I could imagine. Like there was just awesome, deep stuff in there, asking all the right questions and exploring things from all the right directions. In my opinion, about the the high stakes game of building infrastructure, because like mm-hmm. every 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 you know crack in the concrete in in the in the financial infrastructure of the future is going to be a gaping crevice in 100 years and i think part of what we're going through right now is we're discovering the assumptions of our past those little philosophical hairline fractures that we overlooked for convenience are now gaping crevices that mm. everything is falling into and yeah. i just love the amount of care with which kernel both its leadership and just kind of the general ethos um, yeah. examined, you know, the yeah. all all of the nuance involved in building this stuff. So it was really exciting. I made lots of good friends, and yeah. I'm, I'm going to stick around as much as I can. Totally. And I got to say that, like, you know, thus far I've given Vivek a lot of credit for Colonel, and he deserves a lot of credit. But Andy Thudhope uh, deserves a lot of credit for creating all of the material, and. Um, Man, I just remember hanging out at DevCon in Tokyo with Andy and Vivek. We got a house together and just nonstop philosophy, philosophy, you know, crypto philosophy. And like they basically productized that with Kernel. It's really kind of incredible. Like I was extremely privileged to be in that Airbnb with them and they took it and productized it so it could be scaled to 250 people per quarter. Um, some of it, like, you know, I I want to be philosopher king. And so, um, some of like the philosophy I find to be not very applicable and, you know, just like the engineer in me is like kind of pragmatic about it. Um, and sometimes, you know, sometimes it's never applicable, but sometimes I'm like, Oh, what am I ever going to do with this? And I just like stick it in my back pocket as like an intellectually interesting thing. And then like six months later, I'm like, Oh, that matches this mental schema. Fucking Andy, he was way ahead of me on this. So, um, yeah, anyway, this is a long shill for kernel.community for, for your listeners. Check it out. Oh, yeah. Shill, shill well-deserved. Um, mm-hmm. do, you, do you have a favorite philosopher? You mentioned a philosophy minor. Do you have like some, some favorites yeah. in history? It's, 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 the question is like, what's your favorite band? Because it's like, I don't know, man. Am I in the mood for bluegrass or, like, or EDM? Name as many people um, as you want. Just like whatever. We can go to town on this. Yeah, for sure. Um, well, how about I'll do one, you do one just so that we can can sort of go back and forth. Um, so I'm going to start with, um, uh, maybe not like 
a traditional like wouldn't be considered a philosopher in in like from like an academic sense but um richard linklater's film uh waking life uh which was a 2001 story about this 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 person who throughout the course of the film realizes he's dreaming and then learns to wake up and control his dream through a lucid dream was a really like interesting movie for me and got me into this whole subculture of lucid dreaming and like exploring your subconscious through dreams. And the question, am I awake right now was just so profound on many levels. Uh, and especially the first time that I was in a dream and there's this thing called a reality check in, in lucid dreaming culture. And, um, and this basically goes like this, like I'll, I'll do something like flip a light switch. And if the lights don't turn on or off, then I'm in a dream. And like, you'll be in a dream and you'd say, and you do a reality check and you'd be like, I know I'm not dreaming, but I'll just do the reality check anyway. And holy shit, you're in a dream. Like your mind can, can like trick you into, into the fact that you're dreaming. And, and then once you do that, you can fly or you can go have sex or you can go talk to Albert Einstein and like, it just opened up a lot of like intellectual stimulation for me to uh, see waking life. And, um, and, you know, also like this is 2001 before the internet really took off. He was creating just a niche film for people who loved lucid dreaming, which is like a market of like probably 10,000 people. So like respect to the creator behind that for, for creating that yeah. movie. So that's my first answer. What, how about, how about you? Well, I, I want to, I want to answer, but that, that was an awesome answer. I want to, I want to, dive a little deeper there because I've always sure. been drawn to lucid dreaming as a thing. I've done it by accident a couple times, but were you in yeah. that tiny niche in 2001? Have you been doing this a long time? Um, I discovered Waking Life, the movie in 2002 when, uh, yeah, just like a friend, was, I was over at their house and we watched it and it was just unlike any other movie that I'd ever seen before. It just wasn't Hollywoodized. Um, and I spent like two or three years being really into that culture, but then I eventually just kind of like lost it and, and didn't, didn't get, get as deep in. And now I have a lucid dream like once a month, but just knowing that it's out there and that it's possible was like, I remember the first time I put an Oculus quest on my head and I was like, well, it really tricks your body into thinking that your your mind into thinking your body's somewhere else. And like, I feel like I discovered that like 20 years early when I learned about lucid dreaming. Yeah. Also helped me awesome. work through some like emotional stress that I was going through at the time. And, you know, work, learning to work with your subconscious is, is sometimes good for that. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I love the idea of lucid dreaming because it seems like there's a possibility to unlock a mm. lot more basically waking time. Like I've heard of martial arts masters who will just practice their kicks in lucid dreams and just have that much more time over their enemies practicing. And I just mm -hmm. kind of love that concept that we can, yeah, we have access to resources that are not, not normal. Go ahead. So, so that, that is true. And I, I agree with that. Yes. And, um, yeah. but I've been someone who's been like into productivity hacks and like shit for a long time. And like, I would just say that like, yes, unlocking more waking time is good, but like, we're not all here to just like build the startup of you and to be like hustling all of during our waking hours. And now even in our dreams, like it's about exploring frontiers and being intellectually curious and like following ideas or what, what is the line from waking life? It's like, um, it's, a uh, it's, a uh, engage with your, your thoughts and ideas physically as though they're physically personified. Um, you know, like, I, I just don't want people to think it's like another productivity hack. So now you can be working 15 hours a day instead of 12 hours a day. Cause like, that's not the point of it, you know? Totally. Totally. 
Um, and that's why I think you have exactly the right priorities to fly, have sex, and then coffee with Albert Einstein. <laughs> I think that's, I think <laughs> that's exactly just, the right, you know, instinct. Yeah, no, those are just the first things that everyone does. Cause it's like, what would you do if there were no the boundaries? But like, you can get into weirder shit. Like in the movie, they talk about training yourself to see in all directions at once, like 360 degrees, uh, at once, which to me is just like, I would have never even thought of that. Cause you know, I'm like in Plato's cave. Like I didn't even know that that was possible. Um, like engaging with like dead relatives and, and like your ideas as if they're physically personified is, is like kind of gets into like trippier, weirder, weirder stuff. And then there's exploring the, the universe, like flying from solar system to solar system. You know, these, these are like the more boundary pushing things, but like, yeah, having sex is just the first thing that, that people, people do. Mike, you don't know this, but I was in Lucid Dream for a long time. Kevin, did you oh, ever yeah? get oh, yeah? did you ever get stuck in like a a layered dream? Because that's what stopped me doing it ever again. Yeah, where you like, and obviously time's different, right? It's like it's expansive, and sometimes like a a day in the lucid dream or a day in a dream can feel like a month. I got stuck in like a layered dream where I kept waking up into another dream, and they were so vivid, and I was in there like months, and it was it was horrendous. I was in this really? like dead, horrible, silent hill type play park. And nothing scary was there, but it was like, this isn't a good place. And then I'd lay on the floor yeah. and then I'd fall asleep in the dream and then wake up and it would feel a little bit more like I'd woken up, but not enough. Yeah. And, that, and that went on for like 20 different times. And I was like, then I finally wow. wake up and you do that thing where you like, <gasps> like feel in the room. And I was like, man, I'm not yeah. doing that again. I, uh, you must have like a different profile or something than me because like i get freaked out too easy like I'll, I'll try to fly or be spider-man or something and then i'll be like oh shit uh this is weird and freaky and then i'll just like wake up and um so the fact that you get trapped in a dream i think is the opposite opposite of that that's that's neat though that you can hold on to it and it's that stable for you for that long yeah maybe it was i don't know maybe it's someone else who knows Mm-hmm. I used to do that thing that you, did you ever do the technique where like you know when you're just waking up if you imagine yourself spinning with your arms out like that mm-hmm. you get you get sucked yep. back in yeah oh I didn't know that yeah, I played with a couple different techniques but I've never heard of that one no, that's a pretty good one it's it's and it's like really obvious to you that you're then in a dream yeah but yeah yeah the lesson I take away from all of this kind of stuff is that there's we're we're exploring this design space in web three of what's possible when you have networks of computers that can transmit value across a computer network um and and i think that like there's the obvious ideas that are skeuomorphic um you know the things that recognize like we recognize from our physical world or from the internet pre-internet of money but then there's going to be these completely novel things that we're going to discover that we could just like never ever even dream of in the old mental schema. And so a lot of it is like exploring idea spaces and being the first to realize that, oh, we can take concept X and position it in way Y. And it's actually not totally insane, even though it's never been done before. So there's like idea of thinking abstractly and, and being intellectually curious and, and exploring design spaces that I think is spans across, across both worlds. I think that's a really cool way of looking at it. Um, the design space that seems to be emerging in a certain way is well on one hand there's like knowledge tech there's epistemic tech there's like Rome research mm-hmm. and that you know that whole space and on the other it's sort of like at a, at a more meta level it's like ergonomics 
you've you mentioned the skeuomorphism of like moving the desktop metaphor onto a computer. All right, so we're taking this physical physical thing and putting it on a computer, but that's not necessarily how our minds want to work, which is I think a huge part of the Rome research insight that it's built to kind of fit the way at least certain people's minds actually work. So we're going into like non-physical ergonomics, psychoergonomics, you might say. And that's that's a really exciting design space because it skips the physical world completely. It skips that proxy abstraction layer and then you know skeuomorphize that into digital and just goes right from here to the digital world. Um, is that kind of kind of what you're saying, or is that a super? Yeah, that's there? exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it's neat. We're also privileged to be able to be exploring this. It's just I pinch myself. Yeah, you know, it really is. It feels like being at the eye of a hurricane or something. Just have the whole world swirling around, and we're just like in this really sweet, sweet little spot. Um, yeah, it really does. Feel I think so. Way. It's it's not all. Yeah, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Like I'm stressed out a lot with just trying to run a company with regulatory uncertainty and like it's really hard to find talent right now and like the market goes up or down 10 5 or 10% in a day. Like that's all fucking shitty shit, but it I think the juice is worth the squeeze. This is this is the kind of stuff that makes me feel like the juice is worth the squeeze. Yeah. Yeah, 100%. And uh, speaking of talent being hard to find, I have some hires to make. And the first stop I'm going to make is Gitcoin. I'm probably going to do <laughs> that yeah. today. Yeah. Yeah, know, that's great. Just... Yeah, I mean, fair warning. Like, I think with bounties, like, basically 50% of what you get back will be crap. And, like, just don't give those people money. 25% will be good. And then if you can find 20%, that's great. Like, take that person and walk them off into the sunset. Uh, and that's, that's what we plan. should be successful with hiring on, on Gitcoin. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And that that's exactly how it went from the earliest from my early experience there it was a it was a bear market so everyone was super underpriced but it was that sort of spray and pray kind of a thing shotgun approach you hire hire a bunch of people and then one of them can like really kill it and keep that person and have them evaluate the next ones and just yeah totally for me complete noob that worked great yeah for me it's like speed dating um one of the things that's really hard with like traditional hiring is that um, you post a job description, you do a bunch of interviews, you do a bunch of reference checks, maybe you do a whiteboard interview and you like approximate what it would be like to work together. And then you wait for them to start and then you onboard them. And then like, finally you get to see what it's like to work with them. But if you can shorten that cycle time to just like, yo, I'll give you an ETH if you do this project and like, let's see if we like working together, it just skips all the bullshit. And, um, and that's what I, I think that we're sort of like prototyping with, with Gitcoin for, for hiring. Um, and it doesn't always work. Like it's fine. I, I can admit that even as the founder of the product, but, um, the upside of meeting someone great is much lower than the downside of like, just control the explosion of like, we're doing a project together. If it doesn't work out, I'll pay you half and we can both walk away as friends. So that's been kind of cool. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the D bullshitification I've definitely felt and enjoyed like the removal of steps. I like that. Oh yeah. It's just, there's the, 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 the bullshit recapture industry is so wide open right now. Mm -hmm. And I just, it's, it's so, it's so much fun to, you know, participate in that and, and participate in other people participating in that. Um, just being able to skip all the interviews and go right to like, does this work? Um, has, has been hugely, Usually helpful. 
Um, it's good to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do have to run in at the top of the hour. I'm sorry for getting here late, but hopefully this was an expansive conver- enough conversation for your audience. I don't know how long your podcasts usually are. Uh, we usually a lot two hours and they tend to go between 90 minutes and that, but it's perfectly fine. Okay. I just, I wanted to kind of cover a lot of, you know, weird ground. And I think we've, we've definitely. Ooh, can that be the that podcast somewhat? title covering weird ground with Kevin Owaki? <laughs> I'm into Guest it. Guest choice. You got it. You got it. Covering weird ground. <laughs> there's, there's, uh, what's there's, the weirdest there's... thing we haven't talked about yet? Oh man. Uh, let me, let me, well, you live in Denver, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone thinks there's something weird about the airport. <laughs> That's right. That you, there's like an Illuminati conspiracy under the airport. I heard that, but only after yeah. I lived here for like six years. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, like, I don't know anything about that. I guess okay. we, we could speculate. <laughs> well, it gives me a lot of hope because if, if, if humans already have access to like UFO tech, then as soon as the public knows about that, climate change is done. It's just like, boom, infinite so. energy. If they boom, just had infinite use it for resources. Good. That's that's right. the whole problem with Pandora's box of technology is like if they decide to use it for the common good, yeah, right. then then climate change is toast. Right. Um, no, the weirdest ground I can think of is okay. So in the internet, um, like you have like Yahoo and 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 Google, right? So like both had the same goal of of organizing the world's information. Yahoo took the library card catalog system and put it on the internet. Google made a completely new interface that no one would have ever predicted before. Um, so like, you know, let's play forward this blockchain trend to like 2035. Like what's the equivalent of that with the internet of value? Something that will be completely obvious in retrospect and extremely useful, but will only, will only be obvious in hindsight that's enabled by these structures. I didn't mean to, I, you know, I wasn't looking for this, but I honestly think it's idea market. I honestly yeah. think it's this model. Oh yeah. Because the big challenge right now is how do you reconcile giving people freedom to choose their information while having mm-hmm. a sense of responsibility for it? And that's what markets do. If you have a browser extension, for example, that shows market data about an article or about a voice or about a concept, Instead of this mm. is fake news, this is disinformation, this is misinformation, which nobody yeah. has the ability, let alone the right to decide, Yeah. then we can have this sort of curation layer that's based on risk and not you know, fiat declaration by some company or government. And mm. that I think is, is, is really the, on, the only way forward. I think it's, it's kind of inevitable that we will have markets for information in one way or another. And so... Um, like yeah, we kind of saw this peeking out with the GME phenomenon, the, the GameStop phenomenon, where people mm-hmm. just, you know, people lost money just because they wanted to send a message on a platform that the institutional class would hear and couldn't ignore. They even if even if the message was super low res, it was just FU Wall Street. Because mm-hmm. stock markets aren't made for expressing messages. Yeah. But right. we're building a, a market that is for expressing messages. And I think, I think it'll be used. I think the demand for that kind of solution to the misinformation and communication problem and that sort of democratization of informed consent is, uh, requires this kind of solution. Uh, it's the only thing that seems to fulfill the important criteria on, on both sides. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's really interesting with blockchains. You can make basically make markets out of anything. Um, and what's what's interesting to me is like our money is now programmable. And so if we have specific values, we can program our values into our money and create markets that reflect value containers. And like hyper capitalism to me doesn't feel like a, a way of creating human flourishing. Like it feels like greed, like the, the, the psychic instantiation of greed. But when it's programmable, you can like, you can like shift it in one direction or another. Like you can design it around value sets. And I think that um, that's a really exciting idea. And, and yeah, you're exploring that, uh, that with idea markets and, and um, I'm curious to see how it goes. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I think the biggest, the biggest thing I'm excited about is to see when, when what gets called common knowledge and public narratives and all that stuff are no longer kind of handpicked for us when that is more democratized, when there's more of a, an unmediated dashboard between the public and itself to see what we really believe in value, what kind of values will emerge? It's, it seems like most people don't really want endless wars and all kinds of, you know, awful things. And when that voice is, uh, irrepressible, I'm optimistic that it will you know create extra demand and optimism and hope for the kinds of values that work in the long run instead of uh you know, yeah. this kind of turbulence yeah the um you know this gets into meditations on moloch territory which is this beautiful essay that was circulated in the community in 2019 about a living in a dictatorless dystopia where if we could all choose it uh we would not want climate change to be a thing but our small incremental choices add up to be this, uh, this, this monster that is the world heating up or, um, you know, we, if we all could like stroke a pen and make it true, then misinformation would no longer be a thing. And, um, we would not want nuclear proliferation, like enough bombs that could blow up the planet. And we're just, just like living with it. And, you know, could be at, you know, that destruction could be right around the corner. And so, um, Meditations on Moloch talks about all these coordination failures where like we're failing to coordinate to make these things not happen are kind of like a giant monster, like a giant demon monster Moloch that is causing all these humans to work in ways that they're, they're complicit in creating outcomes that they do not desire. And um, one of the things that I, I think is really cool about Ethereum is we're building a better substrate for coordination. So basically... Yeah. It is all coordination and it always has been. And now we've got a more efficient way to coordinate. We've got an immutable, transparent, programmable substrate for people to build better coordination mechanisms. And what if we can't just start chipping away at Moloch at those coordination failures using that? Um, but, you know, so that's that's the hopeful message. The, the, the sort of the hard message there is that all coordination is a choice. There can be the best coordination mechanism in the world. But if people choose to defect instead of to coordinate, then we will be more headed towards the black mirror than, than towards the solar punk world. And so it's uh, mechanisms can only go so far. It's, 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 I think the choices that people make and in the, you know, we all have to choose to steer towards that. And that's, that's the hope and promise, but also the peril of, of the internet of value and the internet, I think these days. Yeah, absolutely. And um, the way we can, program money to make certain make more publicly beneficial choices more naturally appealing so that freedom can be aligned with that sort of uh, collective benefit 
I think is, you know, one of the most, if not the most exciting possibility that we're all kind of building inside. So uh, I know you got to go, but thank you so much for joining us for this hour here. It's been uh, super fun and we'll uh, continue the witness some other time. Thanks for having me. This is a great place to end it.